0: For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today.
1: What's up, y'all? Y'all know what it is. Is will exactly live in corporate, and we have real talk with real people in a corporate world. And this real talk is doing what? Uh, centering and amplifying unrepresented voices at work. And um, man, we we have a great guest. We have a great guest. Really excited um, f- uh, to have Dr. Richard Orbe Austin. Is that right? Is it Orbe?
2: Yes, yes, so, like sorbet. hey <laughs>
1: smooth like sorbet. Orbe, what's up? <laughs> Bars, Doctor Orbe Austin is a psychologist. I don't know why I started off like that. Is a psychologist and partner of Dynamic Transition Psychological Consulting, a career and executive coaching consultancy in New York City. Doctor Orbe Austin has worked in the field of career and executive coaching for over fifteen years, and was the founding director of NYU's Graduate Student Career Development Center. Goodness gracious! In this capacity, he served in the strategic vision and led a team responsible for managing the career needs of over fourteen thousand graduate students in over 100 different disciplines. Prior to his tenure at NYU, Dr. Orbe Austin served in a variety of leadership roles, including as the chief diversity officer at Baruch College City University of New York, and as the president of the NY Association of Black Psychologists okay so he's certified again see people come on this you know what i'm saying people you know will subversely kind of ask me like well who do you even have on your podcast y'all be trying to talk to me you know it's really a function of colonial white supremacy but we ain't gonna talk about it right now how y'all try to come <laughs> and challenge my the the credos of this show uh but you know what i'm saying we have the we have real ones over here so don't test us okay do not test us miss round and um you know what i'm saying pull your card don't play Dr. Orbe Austin's opinions and writings have appeared in a variety of publications, including Forbes, Fast Company, Diverse Executive, and Thrive Global. He's earned his Ph.D. in counseling psychology from Fordham University's Graduate School of Education and his B.A. in psychology from NYU. His book, on Your Greatness, Overcome imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt and Succeed in Life, published by Ulysses Press, co-authored by his partner, Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin, uh, will be released in April 2020. The goal of this book is to provide a systematic way to eradicate imposter syndrome and help readers find their power so they can utilize it for their own goals and lead a more balanced life. What a bio. I feel like I got to drop some air horns just for the fact that that was very, very dense and all very substantive and impressive. What's up? Come on, drop them right here. <laughs>
2: That's a flex, I meant to drop this.
1: but Keep them both in, man. Don't drop them. Come on, let's go. How are you doing, Dr. Austin? Dr. Orbe Austin.
2: Uh- I am wonderful, Zach. It's a pleasure to meet with you and your wonderful audience. So I'm thrilled to be chatting with you today.
1: Now, look, I don't want to spill too much tea, but I know your cousin, right? And his name is not Orbe Austin. It's just Austin. Can we talk a little bit about the last name?
2: So, yes, I want to always tell the story about anytime my wife and I go and present anywhere and we introduce ourselves, people kind of give a look, and then I have to start by saying, look, Uh, just to get out of the way, we are not brother and sister. We're actually husband and wife. So when we got married, I actually took my wife's name. So her name was Lisa Orbe. My name was Richard Austin. And as we joined our families, we joined our names. And So it's not traditional, I think, for a lot of people in the society to see a man do that. So I think it throws people off. So I'm always thrilled to kind of talk about, you know, equity and equality and, and really being able to join families in that way
1: you know what and shout out to you you know what i mean because you know you're rejecting patriarchy one bold move at a time it's interesting how we uh how we've normalized the idea that women um women's last names are just erased you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and mm-hmm. it's not, you know it's not really cool you know what i'm saying now look did my wife take my last name yes okay what i hyphenate probably not because i'm not really that strong i'm pretty insecure as a man you know what i'm saying but look it takes a real man (laughs) uh but it you know it takes a real man to uh you know to admit that because it's funny you know people be talking to you know i can come on this podcast and i can talk about rejecting patriarchal systems and you know Mm -hmm. all these kind of things but then you ask me one of you know so you know any type to supplant any privilege that i may have i'm over here like you know, wait a second. We ain't going to just, you know, I'm not giving it up. No, but all jokes aside, that's awesome. I love that. I love that. Um, and I was very curious about it from the beginning. And yes, definitely shout out to Mrs. Orbe Austin, um, your partner uh, in crime and business and life. What's up? Um, so let's, let's talk about your journey, though, and why you got into psychology.
2: Like, like mm-hmm. what,
1: what was the, the path there?
2: So I will say that the first Reason that I got into psychology was a pretty simplistic notion of psychology. So, about eighth grade, I always remember developing this advice column for my classmates called Ask Dr. Rich. So, at the time, I thought being a psychologist meant telling people what to do. And so, you know, as an eighth grader with all the knowledge that I had at that time, all of course, the and experience, right? So, why not, you know? do that, right? So I really enjoyed being able, you know, and at that time, it was usually relationship issues that people were writing in about. And I had my little column. And and again, not that I had that great of experience in relationships, (laughs) but I felt like I could provide something enough for people to seek my assistance. And then as I got a better understanding of what it meant to be a psychologist, I came to realize that I could make a contribution down that path in terms of really being able to help people be their best selves. And so the background that I typically give is that I'm a son of Haitian immigrants. So that automatically means that I was destined to be a medical doctor, right? So for a long time, <laughs> I thought I was going to be a psychiatrist, right? Because that fulfilled filled both the medical doctor side and then my desire to work on behavior. Thankfully enough, My sister became a pediatrician, my older sister. So I think she gave me some room to navigate and negotiate the reality that "Mm, maybe I'm not gonna actually go down that path of medicine, but continue to pursue my dream of going into psychology. And so through college, I was pre-med, I thought I was going down that path, the MCAT did all the things to really shape the direction of going into medical school. But then I began to know and understand when I took a internship after my junior year at Columbia University, uh, and I had the good fortune to work with a black male psychologist uh, who, at the time, to me was like a unicorn. So I'd never actually right. met a psychologist in person, let alone a black male psychologist, uh, and began to really know and understand that one it's possible to go down that route to mm that I would have mentorship to really be able to know and understand how to navigate that path and negotiate it. So I had to have that hard conversation one day with my parents that I was not going to pursue medicine, but I was still going to be a doctor and it was just going to be as a psychologist. So ultimately that's the path I took. I pursued, you know, my counseling psychology degree uh, and really along the way, understood that that was the best fit for me.
1: Can we talk a little bit about, so you you talked about it, you know, that seeing yourself represented is what then gave you the gumption to then pursue it yourself. But can we talk a little bit more about, about black representation in mental health and recognizing that, um, that you are um, a child of, of immigrants, of Haitian immigrants, but curious about, you know, what, what have you seen your presence as a black man make with your Black and Brown patients and students and prospective or hopeful psychologists and psychiatrists?
2: Sure. So one of the particular missions that I've always had is to really increase the representation of Black mental health practitioners, I'll say, in general in the field. So when we look at the numbers right now, they're abysmal, that less than 4% of psychologists are black uh, and I'd say less than 2% of psychologists are black males. So, and it's typically across the board, you see those similar numbers in psychiatry and in social work. So the people that tend to engage clinically with our folks uh, are not the people that look like them, right? And so over 86%, for instance, uh, of psychologists in the U.S. are white. So what I was able to know and recognize as, as I said before, one, is to be able to see individuals who look like me pursuing the same profession as I wanted to pursue was very inspirational to me. But they also were able to provide me guidance uh, and a home to, to talk about some of the challenges of being the only one in a lot of these spaces. So when I started my doctoral program, I was the only black male there. I oftentimes was primarily the only male in a lot of these rooms and so you know the running joke in my program is that they would have one black male like every four or five years and so I would meet you know I met the person who came on before me uh, who was the black male for that time Uh, and subsequently I knew I needed to join organizations and, and connect with professionals in the field so I was able to be exposed to the Association of Black Psychologists very early on in my career, so I felt like I had an opportunity to engage with other folks doing this work. And then I saw it full center when I was able to do some of my training. One of the stories I always talk about when we talk about things coming full circle as a child of Haitian immigrants, I had an opportunity to do an internship at Kings County Hospital out, out Brooklyn, New York. And I had the opportunity to actually work with this Haitian psychiatrist who had created a special clinic for Haitian patients, Haitian American patients. And one of the things that he did as a psychiatrist primarily was to provide medication, but he recognized that a lot of these folks needed some more support. So he was able to collaborate with me to start a mini, I guess, psychology clinic where I would do therapy with some of these folks and The fact that I could speak their language, the fact that I knew their culture, the fact that, again, I looked like them, I think was so helpful in, one, helping them to not be afraid of the journey that they were taking through the mental health uh, landscape. Uh, And then two, it really enabled them to feel like they were being heard, understood, respected and seen in ways that they probably may have never felt. That they had been seen before, especially as as many of them had, you know, recently immigrated to the U.S. and were trying to find their way.
1: And so, you know, it's interesting to your point, to your earliest point around like this representation in the space being abysmal. Like, it's it's challenging too. Like, as someone as someone who has at various points in their life like pursued like a, like psychiatry or therapy or like just talking to somebody, right? it's not only like finding somebody but like that small pool then limits some of the flexibility that i've heard that my white counterparts have where it's like okay i have this psychiatrist but we don't really click and so i'm gonna go and try to find somebody else right like Mm -hmm. like like they'll shop around and it's like right like for me like you know it's kind of like well dang i mean he and i don't really vibe on this level or she and i don't really agree about this or whatever the case may be but she looks like me and she at least mm-hmm. at least empathizes with the bulk reality of my experience so don't let me be picky i'm just going to stay here
2: Hmm. yeah and it becomes a challenge especially when folks reach out to me and say that they're looking for some level of support and they say hey i want an african-american therapist and typically you know i do say to shop around to find a fit right and so i want to give them as many options possible I end up being able to give hopefully on you know the better end three to four options and then if they go to the first one and they feel like okay there's not a connection there they may or may not actually then move forward on it right so I know that by the time someone gets to a point of really wanting to go to therapy it's a Mm -hmm. major step for them to make that call right and so I always want to honor that and honor that you know effort to really make sure that they link with someone as soon as possible and someone that they can vibe with, right? Because yes, someone could look like you, but if you don't feel comfortable enough to be open and vulnerable to them, then it's just not going to work. Right. So right. that's the thing that I talk about. Cause you know, We can all feel like, hey, you know, they'll look like us, but if we don't connect, whether it's a coworker or, you know, or other person that we're like, yeah, they're black, but you know, I'm not really feeling them in that way. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, so it is a dilemma in helping people to feel like they have options and, you know, it's all right to kind of go to one or two to, to find the best fit. So
1: you're a black man. You are in like a very white academic space, and I'm really curious about what like what the microaggressions and just straight on aggressions look like for you, um, right? And I'm looking at your profile picture. I would imagine you know you're not catfishing anybody. You probably look a lot like your profile picture. <laughs> <laughs> so you 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 look like you present you while you present. Of course, you don't present like a child. Like you don't present like a very old man, right? Like you present mm-hmm. you present moderately young, right? Mm -hmm. and so I'm really curious as to like what does it look like just being you in these spaces and like what does it look, what do microaggressions look like like I said, what do do actual aggressions look like how do you navigate that what are some maybe patterns of behavior that you see operating as who you are in these spaces Mm -hmm.
2: sure so you know I'm glad that you raised my picture right and how young I look, I I appreciate the compliment (laughs) (laughs) but But that was one of the big ones, right? When I started out in either doing clinical work or in teaching for a while, I used to teach uh, at the collegiate level. And I would get always, well, you look really young to be a professor or you look really young to be a therapist, right? And sure, on one hand, it could be about age, but I think after a while, if you you. Still keep getting that same thing and my colleague my white colleagues who were just as young as me were not getting that then it made me begin to think about well you know what does that necessarily mean in terms of credibility uh, being authentic how do I then recognize how to be seen for who I am so that was one and then the other piece of it you know oftentimes that would come up is the typical Wow you're very articulate Right. Whether it's, you know, giving a speech to a a group of faculty members, whether it's, you know, being able to do a case presentation, a case conference. So oftentimes there would be these underlying microaggressions that were really racially and, you know, gender based. You know, so if, for instance, you know, sometimes people would say, oh, you know, you, you know, don't dress in a particular manner because you know, it might be intimidating to the students just dress down. Right. Like, so for me, it's like, you know, I wear a suit to work. Right. 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 And that, that's my style. But to be told, I never forget this to be told by a supervisor, well, you know, like you may not want to do that. It might just be intimidating. And again, in that moment, I didn't necessarily feel like, Oh, okay. Well, this is clearly a microaggression and that's the nature of of microaggressions right that in the moment kind of catches you a little off guard it's not so direct but then when you sit and think about it for a little bit and then you recognize that okay my white male colleague wears a suit and he goes in a tie every day and is a little older than me and i'm not imagining you know he was told the same thing right So it's managing and navigating that path. And then on the other path, you know, some of the work that I do as a consultant going into these different spaces, corporate spaces or, you know, academic institutions and people being surprised, right? They may not necessarily see my picture. They may have a conversation with me. But then when I show up in the room, you know, you get that sense of, oh, you know, my name sounds a little bit generic, you know, especially when it was Richard Austin right so sometimes they right. they're not expecting me to show up as the person that i am uh and so they do a little double take right and then and then they catch themselves right and so i get that right but now i've always said to be quite honest that my phd has provided me access to many spaces that i otherwise wouldn't have had because of who i am right that those three little letters enable me to step into rooms that otherwise I'd be shut out of. Uh, and when I'm in those rooms, I can then take up my power, even though there is some level of pushback against it.
1: And so, I'm, you know, it's interesting because I've, I've, I've spoken with folks, we have some mutual connections and uh, some of them also have like some really prestigious degrees. And so the conversation that I'll have with, with some of those folks is something like, you know, my education and my profile can like preemptively trigger fragility and insecurity with my peers because they see the additional letters after my name or they see Mm -hmm. and then you know but i'm I'm curious like have you ever experienced that yourself or do you think that's a bit more masked because of the fact that you're in like more formal academic spaces
2: well not always am I in these spaces, right? So, for instance, is one of the types of consulting I do is diversity, equity, inclusion work. And in those spaces, particularly when I'm in corporate rooms where, yes, they can get that, you know, I have those three letters. But, but there is pushback, you know, against some of the things that I may have to offer, I think, because of, you know, who I am and what I may represent. Right. And so we, you know, go into some of these spaces, knowing that people might talk about wanting to do the work, but when it's time to do the work and when the work that's being guided by a black male is not what you want, then there can be a particular level of backlash or, you know, aggressive pushback that needs to be navigated, negotiated.
1: And so then, you know, and I think that leads us well into, you know, no, I'm gonna pause on this actually, because like we have not formally talked about this on the podcast, but I think it leads well into like the main topic that we're going to get into today, which is imposter syndrome. Um, can we talk a little bit about like gaslighting and like, what mm-hmm. the, and what that is, and then perhaps how gaslighting can tie into imposter syndrome or exacerbating imposter syndrome?
2: mm mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, a great segue because when we talk about gaslighting, in essence, it's trying to convince you that what you're experiencing, seeing, listening to is not your experience, right? That if someone makes a clearly racist, sexist, homophobic comment, clearly has done something offensive and they say to you, well, you know that's you know you're reading too much into that, right? Or yeah, I don't I don't really understand how you came to that conclusion, right? And in the workspace again, it's very difficult, especially one if it's if there's a power disparity, right? Like if if this person doing the gaslighting is a supervisor or a senior peer, it's difficult to feel confident and comfortable enough to push back. And then two, ultimately it's hard to then feel like you can win, right? Because if someone is in their particular stance, it's very difficult to argue with unless you have, you know, video recordings and you play it back and you're like, yeah. Because they can say, well, I don't remember saying that. Or right. no, that's not what I said. Right, And and then you're left to, to kind of say, no, this was my experience, this is what I heard. And if you don't have the data, so to speak, they may just dismiss it, right? They say that you're just being sensitive or you're playing the race card or you're doing this. Uh, and, and then you're left totally powerless to really be able to make your argument stick.
1: Or situations where they say, well, you know, like to the point I'm on race card is you know maybe it's the fact that you're just not good enough and so now you're you're leaning back on this as an excuse.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. Well, so let's let's talk about this now let's talk about the concept of imposter syndrome. Like in season one, it was like one of our first episodes actually. We were talking about imposter syndrome, but we really we really didn't get into like the science of it. We more so talked about like. Um, believing in yourself and you know knowing who you are and um, and not trying to be fake right Uh, being authentic Mm -hmm. but we didn't get into like the neuroscience and like the the genuine psychology of imposter syndrome and how it relates specifically to to black and brown people Um, can we talk a little bit just about what imposter syndrome is as a concept and how you would define it medically
2: Sure. So first off, I will say that imposter syndrome is not a diagnosable disorder, right? So it was first coined by two psychologists, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, in actually 1978. Uh, And at the time, they were studying very successful female students and faculty members at an academic institution. Uh, And what they noticed is that these women who seemingly were high achievers, did not feel as such, right? They felt that they were frauds. They felt that they were going to be exposed as not smart enough, not good enough. Uh, They, again, thought that they were imposters. So they coined that term to really speak about this phenomenon in which people have difficulty internalizing their accomplishments, their skills and their experiences. They're constantly in fear. Of being exposed as a fraud uh, and as a result of that they tend to overwork to compensate for their perceived lack of ability so when we talk about imposter syndrome it's really that experience that someone may have that isn't necessarily a medical or mental health you know disorder but it tends to be something that impacts people uh, who Again, 70% of the population have talked about experiencing imposter feelings. And so it it often, though, impacts people who are high achievers because that level of success, they do not attribute to their own smarts or intelligence. They attribute it to luck. They attribute it to, you know, key relationships. And so they're constantly haunted by this uh, feeling of being a fraud.
1: And so then, you know, what are some practical ways that imposter syndrome shows up at work?
2: So, when we talk about imposter syndrome in general, we can talk about the fact that a lot of what we call imposter triggering workplaces exist nowadays, wherein people are always feeling like they need to prove themselves over and over again that they're never good enough. Uh, and when we talk about Black and brown folks, especially, they have a a double burden to bear. So on the external end, they're actually dealing with bias and discrimination and and people and systems who are telling them that they're not good enough, that they don't belong, that somehow or another they did not earn their spot. Uh, And then they're dealing with their own internal voices that also tell them that and make them feel like, all right, well, maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe they are right. Maybe I was lucky. Maybe they made a mistake. And it leaves you then feeling like you don't necessarily deserve more. So at work, it means you might not ask for a raise. You might not take on a key project because you fear that you will finally be exposed if you take up that key project which could actually give you more visibility and access but you're concerned that it will be a house of cards and you'll finally be found out uh it makes you feel oftentimes stuck in trying to really look for a better position either within or outside the organization because again of this notion of well i'm just lucky to be here i shouldn't ask for too much uh and it comes up when your boss or peers will say to you, oh, well, you made a mistake on that one thing, or oh, that didn't go that well, or you beat yourself up as well, because one of the key elements that goes hand in hand with imposter syndrome is perfectionism, right? Because if you feel that the only way you deserve to be anywhere is to be perfect, and to overwork, to strive for that perfection, then you can work yourself to the levels of burnout. Uh, and if you make any simple mistake, you will beat yourself up over it and not allow yourself to really grow, learn from it and move forward.
1: And so then what are ways do you think that organizations you talked about organizations that exacerbate imposter syndrome, right? Mm hmm. What do you think are some ways that organizations exacerbate imposter syndrome for everybody? And then what are ways do you believe that organizations exacerbate imposter syndrome, uh, particularly for black and brown folks?
2: Sure. So I talk about some of the triggers in today's work culture. One of them is this notion of performance, right? When I talk to individuals, organizations, I ask them what their performance process is. And some of them will give me blank looks or they'll report back that, oh, you know, it it changes and, you know, it's constantly shifting. If people don't have an understanding of what good performance is, right, like what are they striving to do, then they'll feel like they're not hitting their targets and they feel again that they have to keep proving themselves. And so on the organization's end, they may feel like, well, that's great because it's going to drive productivity. Right. But ultimately, it may drive people out of the organization. It may drive people to burnout as seen through absenteeism, as seen through, you know, different ways of not necessarily being at the level of production that people want. So the first thing I tell organizations to do is to really make sure that you have a legitimate performance process, typically not just once a year. Because again, if someone doesn't know either that she's doing well or that there's room for improvement, she's just going to keep working, working, working until burnout, right? So that's the first way that organizations can really address and reduce imposter syndrome. The other thing is, you know, the manager is one of the key people to deliver the message for the organization so these you know management needs to be trained to know and understand how to provide appropriate feedback so you have some managers who feel like well i don't give praise at all i don't give positive feedback because people don't really deserve it they'd have to do something great and no one really does anything great you know by me giving negative feedback it helps them to keep moving forward uh and get better And that has not proven to be the case. Research does not support that notion that the more negative feedback that you give without any positive feedback, the better people will perform. So it's helping people to really understand what constructive feedback is. Again, oftentimes people who rise to the level of of a manager, you know, were great individual contributors. So they don't know and haven't mastered the skill sets needed to be a good manager. Because to be a good manager is to really develop people, to help people grow and learn. And if you don't have that lens, you will continue to make some of the same mistakes that drive imposter syndrome and sustain it. Especially when we talk about black and brown folk, it's helping them to feel that they actually belong that they're not given the project that nobody else wants that if they're on a team they're given some of the lower level types of projects that you actually help them to know and understand that you deserve to be here we respect and value your skill sets your expertise and your experience and we're invested in keeping you and helping you to grow Right. So oftentimes, you know, these notions of belonging, psychological safety that I talk about are tend to be overlooked by organizations because, again, for them, it's just about their bottom line. They want to make sure that people are producing at the levels that they need them to, but don't necessarily think about the cost to to those individuals. And so they end up marginalizing certain people. Uh, And when those people leave, then it's this self-fulfilling prophecy of, oh, well, yeah, they didn't belong here anyway. Uh, And they don't really learn and understand that. Well, maybe it was the organization that didn't create a welcoming up space for them to actually excel.
1: You know, and it's interesting when you talk about like performance and like being really clear with like, you know, what does good look like? I think it's challenging in as work continues to become less transactional and like high paying jobs become more uh, quote unquote strategic um, and qualitative and subjective. I think like with that comes a danger or at least more opportunity to have ambiguity in terms of what good performance looks like. And Mm -hmm. And it gives it gives managers space consciously, unconsciously, maliciously or otherwise, to create hierarchies in their mind, like outside of whatever system you want to use to grade something. Because if work is so is super subjective, like when I think about consulting, right? Like so much of consulting has to do with relationships and like the work itself, because you're not making X amount of widget today. You're putting together a PowerPoint. Or you're writing a paragraph. And and so, and so much of those things are again like just inherently subjective. Like PowerPoint design, I mean, we, and I know there's plenty of folks who hate PowerPoint. Um, but you know, there's some PowerPoints that look great to some folks and look terrible to others. There are some people who love the way that you have us run a meeting, and there's people who think it's the worst thing in the world, right? So it's like, I guess my my question to you is: as you think, as we continue to think about the future of work, and we think about the more soft skills are going to be needed to do the type of work that. Um, that's going to be left when you think about what automation is going to pick up and and kind of like what we're going to then pick up after automation digs through the rubble of work. Um, (laughs) What are ways do you think that we can still create some, some norms, some performance standard or expectation norms that don't exacerbate or create like imposter organizations?
2: I think it's a great question. One of the things that merely comes to mind is one being able to acknowledge just the level of inherent bias in the process as a whole right that we as humans and we as machines (laughs) tend to have bias right so a lot of organizations are really all about technology and and AI and and you know AI ultimately will will reduce you know bias and discrimination And, and then when we look at you know some of these apps that you know when you take a picture they can't recognize black faces or they recognize them as monkeys we know that people make these particular programs and artificial intelligence so being able to constantly understand be on the lookout for the level of bias that exists in performance reviews so one of the things that my wife and I talk about. We do some work around gender bias, and and one of the presentations we talked about is that women tend to get more vague feedback, uh, feedback that does not allow them to again think about ways to improve. So, you know, you said this term strategic before. And that's something I will say to you that comes up a lot, that women will be like, well, you need to be more strategic. And I always say to to my female clients, ask them what that means, right? What does that look like, right? Men tend to get much more tangible, concrete feedback about how to improve. So it enables them to clearly know and understand what they're striving for, right? And you know, I think it's some of the same types of challenges where professionals of color, where if they get any feedback, it may not necessarily be substantial, substantive enough to help them understand how to grow. It may just be punitive. You know, I was reading this article the other day about a hiring process where different black candidates were coming in to the process. And one of the, you know, committee members kept asking and talking about, you know, dress and timeliness to the black candidates, but to the white candidates that never came up. And thankfully, there was someone else on the committee who noticed that and said, you know, I have a question for you. Like, why is it that you're asking questions about timeliness and dress to, you know, certain candidates and not others? And why is it that the candidates you're asking it about are the black candidates? And the woman, you know, was able to frankly enough say, well, you know, I used to, you know, supervise this black woman and, and she used to come in late all the time and, you know, I wasn't really happy about that, so I really wanted to kind of you know, make sure that that was talked about, right? And so you see that she was able to even pinpoint it, right? That this was not even unconscious bias, it was conscious bias of saying, hey this is something that is not acceptable. And then we have the issues related to like hair discrimination now, which is a, a big thing that, you know, in 2020, we're still talking about how people wear their hair as a means of you know, determining whether or not they belong in an organization is just unfathomable to me. So organizations have to be honest with the bias in their processes and in the, the leadership norms and culture and continue to attack it, that it's a lifelong learning process, that it's not this, okay, we're good now. We did some you know, diversity, equity, inclusion work, uh, and we got our certificate, so we're good to go you know, for the next 50 years, right? It's right. really institutionalizing that process. It's really saying, how are we enabling all the different people who come into our organization to feel that they belong, that they're psychologically safe, that there is room for them here,
1: so you said you you said a phrase, and I'm I'm gonna follow up on that. But before I get there, um, you, you know when you talk you talk about, and again I'm just, I'm excited because I have a I have a true like I have a I have someone in the space. So I, I want to, and I've I've continued to say when it comes to um, diversity, equity, and inclusion work, I wish that if there was a way I could have still got the bag, Doctor Orby Austin, if I could have still got the bag and gotten into psychology, but I just couldn't see myself like get in the bag, not getting into that whatever. But I really am in, intrigued by the, the why behind uh, the things that people do, right? So when you talk about giving feedback to black and brown employees, to people of color, do you think there's any role that like self-preservation or fragility plays into not giving, into the type of feedback that black and brown folks receive and the ambiguity of the feedback, as well as like the, the subjectivity of the feedback and maybe even like the, the the lack of substance in the feedback itself. Like, do you think that fragility or self-preservation plays into that?
2: Yes, most definitely because giving feedback is a very difficult, uncomfortable thing to do. And you can be called out when you're giving the feedback as to the things you're lacking in doing. Right. So If you are a manager who doesn't feel secure in managing, right, one, you tend to not want to give any kind of feedback until you have to uh, in that year-end review, that one-time process. And there's some level of fear and anxiety, especially if you find black and brown folks more threatening, that if you give them feedback, that may be upsetting that it will either come back to you in the form of them saying hey well i also want to be able to give you some constructive feedback uh and two if you believe that oh well they're just going to be angry uh then you will refrain from doing anything until you know again you have to and then ultimately if you don't feel that they actually belong in the organization consciously or unconsciously it is a way for you to facilitate an exit, right? So, you know, I had another opportunity with an organization to talk about some of their challenges within their retention process. And one of the things that they raised was the reality that when they looked at the individuals who were on PIPs, they were consistently black employees. And the HR person, you know, thankfully said to the managers, well, why is it like I noticed this and well, what does this mean? Right. And, you know, it's the same way I used to talk about in schools that black males were suspended and expelled at higher rates than their white you know, counterparts, even though they may have the same levels and types of infractions. Right. That. Some of the danger, you know, due to the fragility is, okay. black and brown bodies are threatening uh, to me. So therefore, I have to find ways to protect myself and to punish them, uh, either in the professional space or the academic space. So there was a case the other day where a young black male had the police called on him in in his collegiate classroom because he refused to move his seat and his white male professor decided that the way he was going to negotiate it was through punishment and to call the police to remove the young man rather than than one recognizing that you know the reason he didn't want to move his seat is that he had already come in he had you know sat down but the professor was trying to tell him he needed to come to the front right and again like, would he have done that with the black, uh, with the white student? Probably
1: not. Well, and you know, it's interesting too. I think that also speaks to like, this the bizarre ways that like punishment for black and brown bodies like escalates so fast. It's like, wait, I went from not talking to anybody, there not being any issue, to now I'm talking to like someone with serious, um, with like with a, a huge uh, difference in power than I have where did this come like why how did we get here so fast
2: Hmm. yeah i mean it escalates and and i will say to you you know when we talk about this issue of microaggressions or straight-up aggression i remember one of the first jobs i had you know while i was in graduate school was working in in this college office and again only black male primarily white women working in the space it was a job to actually help you know primarily black latino students who were at gotten kicked out of a four-year college. This was a community college, helping them to get back academically to a space to be able to return. So it was an advising position. I was focused on doing the work relative to helping these students. So I come in, go to my office, close my door, uh, see my students, and go. And that was not acceptable to my white female supervisor. So she decided that she needed to watch me or kind of know and understand what it was that I was doing. And chance would have it, you know, that this is where I actually met my wife, the other Dr. Austin, she came on board. And when she came on board, this woman said to her, well, you know, can you watch in essence, can you watch him? Like, you know, cause you're another person of color. Can you watch him and see like what he's up to? Now, mind you, this woman and her other colleagues, all her other direct reports who were white women will go out to these long lunches, go to Lomas, go shopping, do all these other things. I was in, you know, my office seeing these students, but I was the one who was suspect. And it got to a turning point where, you know, again, I was able to connect with my wife, Lily, and she told me, yeah, I was sent to kind of survey you. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, And it's unbelievable. Right at that stage in my life and my career that, you know, that level of microaggression is like, OK, he's doing his work, but I don't I can't see him because the door closed. My door is closed. So I'm, I'm talking to students and right. I'm dealing with them in that way. Right. So that, you know, are, are some of the hidden ways, because had my wife and I not connected and she then was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to watch him and report back. Then it would just be, oh, he's lazy. He's not doing his job. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. We, I don't know what he's
1: really doing. It he says he's doing this, but I don't see that. Right,
2: right. And so, you know, when we talk about this issue of privilege, you know, I often talk about the fact that white privilege means that you're given the benefit of the doubt relative to competence, relative to innocence, uh, and. You just have a higher trust point, right, that people will tend to believe you and give you the benefit of the doubt, even if you're not doing anything right. (laughs) And so that's the heavier burden that we carry. And it's not, you know, it's not playing the race card. It's not an excuse. It's the reality. It's what the data shows. It's what time and again the numbers show from a wide variety of
1: vantage point it's it's interesting when like the the, your point around being at work and like you're you're a credentialed professional right you're doing your job and yet there are these there are these informal hierarchies right that are that are forming Mm -hmm. around you and you know i've experienced that myself right like i've been in in situations where you know i have people who are supposed to be junior to me or at peer Mm -hmm. level at peer level to me but but again because people are typically not as slick as they think they are. Right. Like most people, right. Like, and and the reality is black and brown people have to be um, extraordinarily vigilant and just paying attention, which we're going to get into psychological safety in a minute. But like, um, it's just interesting because I've been in those situations more than a few times where, you know, I'll be on paper supposed to be this title, but then there's these folks around, and like, I'm noticing they're kind of checking on me or they're asking a bunch of questions or they're, they feel empowered to mm-hmm. try to coach me or tell me what I'm not doing or ask me what I'm doing or, you know, well, mm-hmm. or say, well, I talked to so-and-so and we think you should be, doing. like, well, who is we? I, you're not my boss. Like,
2: <laughs> right,
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, okay. So, so again, a lot of what, what we're, what we're talking about and what I'm hearing, frankly, I'm getting stressed just like rethinking about those things and hearing you describe your experience Mm -hmm. what are ways that leaders can create higher degrees of psychological safety so that employees particularly black and brown ones can work more effectively
2: so one of the things that i talk about and, and this comes up a good deal when i do some of the dei work is psychological safety at the end of the day is telling someone or someone having the feeling that they can show up at work and be their true selves without fear or negative consequence, right? That they can really talk about their experiences, kind of share their beliefs, not be silenced. And a culture has to be developed in order for someone to feel that, right? And what that means on the leadership end is being able to really allow room for differing viewpoints one not punishing people if they don't necessarily agree with what the leaders agree with uh two, really actually listening to people instead of just waiting to talk next that someone else is talking uh and being able to understand and have a certain level of empathy for someone else's experience being able to be vulnerable yourself as a leader and sharing some of the things that you may be experiencing to let people know that okay You know, you're not just superhuman or perfect, that you do make mistakes. Take accountability when you do make mistakes as well to, again, demonstrate that it's all right for you to not have everything in order. But that, you know, it's really adopting a growth mindset of saying that, you know, we're here to do good work. At the same time, we still are striving to to learn and grow in those ways, right? So, you know, creating these spaces to be able to have people have voice is one of the easiest ways for, honestly, organizations to, to develop in psychological safety, right? So it's having access to the leadership. When I meet with people and I talk about, well, how often do you talk to even your manager. And they're like, Oh, you know, we meet maybe once every two or three months. And you know, my mouth is like, totally like, open, like, yeah, that's not good. Right? Like, you have to be able to build relationships with your manager, your manager has to be able to know who you are, not just again, as Someone filling a space and making widgets, but what are your aspirations? What are your hopes and dreams? What are your plans for being in this organization? And because so much management training is lacking or is not as in depth as it needs to be, a good deal of managers feel ill equipped to have some of these conversations. And so they just have very much transactional types of engagements with their direct reports, wherein they just want to know, okay, did you do X project? Let's do a checkoff. Rather than really taking the role as coach, mentor, a uh, growth agent.
1: And, and so then let's talk a little bit about what, what can individuals do to combat imposter syndrome, right? so like we talked about it at, at the organizational level, but what can, what can individuals do?
2: So we talk about in our book, this model that we created called the three C's model, uh, which stands for clarify, choose, create. And it starts with really clarifying your imposter origin story. So we all have origin stories. And some of us are better at really being honest with it than others, but it's being able to know and recognize, well, what may have triggered or started this imposter journey. That oftentimes it might be because you were labeled in your family early on as, you know, either the super smart one who makes no mistakes and so you feel like you just have to be perfect and if you make a mistake then that means you're an imposter Or on the other hand, you were labeled as, you know, the social one and and another sibling or family member was labeled as a smart one, right? So you then didn't feel like, oh, there's room for me to be smart and social. So recognizing that the origins, not to, again, blame anyone, but to know and understand where that comes from. And then the other part of Clarify is to know what your triggers are. So for a lot of people with imposter syndrome, new experiences are a trigger point. So a new job, new project, uh, meeting new people may help them begin to feel increasingly anxious about being found out. That, oh, this is going to be the job where if I fall apart, this is going to be the project where I'm exposed to the fraud. This person is going to see right through me. So knowing and understanding that and then really being able to get support for that. So the last part to clarify is the, change your narrative, right? Like we all have a particular story that we tell ourselves and people in post syndrome typically have a very negative narrative about who they are and what they've accomplished and how they've accomplished it. So being able to honestly look at and own your accomplishments, really being able to say, you know, I really earned that because of my effort and, you know, some of the actual skill that I have. And then we go to choose where It's speaking your truth. So the the reason oftentimes imposter syndrome tends to be sustained is because people suffer in silence, right? Like they feel that they're ashamed to even raise it, right? Like if you're a senior VP, you know, everyone around you looks like, you know, all your family members feel like, oh, you've made it. Then you might be afraid to say, well, I'm actually not happy. And I actually feel like, you know, I'm an imposter. So there's this fear that people will ridicule you for doing that. But being able to say it out loud, can be freeing to begin the process of healing that. And part of healing it is changing not only the narrative, but some of these automatic negative thoughts that you might have about what people think about you, how you label yourself, uh, and how you unfairly compare yourself to others. So being able to create what we call a positive tape instead of, you know, these immediate when something wrong, something goes wrong, the automatic negative thought is, oh, I'm a failure, or here we go again, I'm an imposter. And then in the midst of all this, it's really taking care of yourself, really being able to make self-care a key priority for yourself in choosing. And then finally, the last piece of the puzzle is trying on and creating uh, when we talk about creatives, experimenting with new roles. So a lot of people in imposter syndrome tend to be the helpers, the go-to person in their you know friend, family network, so they don't have the room to ask for support or assistance or feel ashamed to do it. So actually taking on the role of asking for help and feeling like it doesn't expose you to being weak or not being able to do things. Making sure you build your dream team of support, getting a coach, getting a mentor, you know, getting people who will support you in your imposter syndrome, you know, defeating journey. And then finally, understanding that imposter syndrome can be triggered at any point in your life. So when we talk about defeating imposter syndrome, we don't talk about it as an end-all and be-all cure. We talk about it as decreasing the frequency and intensity of those feelings and that when they do occur again, understanding and identifying the conditions for your optimal performance, right? Which is the self-care, which is the dream team, which is changing your narrative.
1: Man, Dr. Orbe Austin, this is, uh, this is incredible. Um, I want to make sure I give you space to plug your book, to talk about where people can learn more about you, where they can find you, all of that.
2: Sure. So again, I appreciate this opportunity. It's been a, a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, people want to know more about the work that I do, uh, they can go to my website, dynamic transitions, LLP.com. So my wife and I, uh, our consultancy is called dynamic transitions, psychological consulting LLP. So you can go online and it will have information about the work that we do. It will have information about the book. Again, the name of the book is own your greatness, overcome imposter syndrome, Ah, uh, beat self-doubt and succeed in life. Uh, and you know one of the things that we felt was important when we wrote the book was to have it be something dynamic and alive. So a part of it talks about you know the experience of of imposter syndrome, but it also then has activities for you to do to really help in overcoming imposter syndrome. So it's not necessarily solely just an academic guide to things. It's actually some Practical tips uh, and applied types of activities that will enable you to to move forward in living your best life.
1: I love it. I love it. Man, uh, it's just been great. I'm just so excited because I do believe, like, and my goal, honestly, our collective goal, Living Corporate, is to get more psychologists and psychiatrists on our platform because when it comes to really making sure that we are centering and amplifying black and brown voices and like effectively empathizing with them I think it's important to have people on who who have some of the academic background and knowledge and like formal understanding not only for our own sake because a lot of us can't afford or for a variety of reasons can't talk to you know don't have those resources but maybe this will this will encourage us to go seek seek help um, that we desperately need this as an output of being in part a part of an oppressive, uh, capitalistic patriarchal system um uh, but i also think it's important that we have folks like you on because f- for the folks who are not black and brown who listen to our platform so because, mm-hmm. because because so oftentimes education is used as a barrier to not listen to black people black and brown people or hear hear our stories this like eurocentric like demand for quantitative data and research that in itself is inherently biased but whatever so i'm just thankful that you're here that's what i'm trying to say okay uh, i appreciate you
2: <laughs> well i appreciate you creating this platform because you know when i heard about it i was so excited to kind of engage with you because as i've talked about many times a lot of our folks particularly in these corporate spaces are suffering in silence And may feel like they're the only ones having some of these struggles. And I think you present a space for them to not feel that they need to go through it alone. Uh, And you provide a certain level of hope uh, and strategies for them to really be able to free themselves from some of the things that may be more corrosive to their quality of life. And really being able to help them believe they can live their best lives.
1: Man, I mean... You know, that's, that's, for, you know, that's, that's claps for both of us. You know what I mean? We, we both celebrate right now. Uh, mm-hmm. all, right. <laughs> all right, y'all look, um, this has been living corporate. Okay. Um, really glad that y'all are here to stop by. You heard Dr. Orbe Austin all of the information. Make sure you check it out in the show notes. Uh, make sure you check us out at living dash corporate, please say the dash dot com. You want to check us on the social media. We all over the place. Just Google living corporate will pop up until next time. Y'all peace. Living corporate is a podcast by living corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for musical elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion